you know, Greek mythology is the epic adventures and the parables, but I've never felt sort of it being personal until I read Circe. Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. Here we are, Sasha Rothschild, producer, Emmy winner, writer, writer of Blood Sugar, one of my favorite books of the last 12 months. We're back. We're talking about Madeline Miller's Circe. So, Sasha, why did you pick this book? I picked this book because, well, this is one of, Circe's one of my favorite books, I think, of the last decade. And I picked this book because it's very personal to me because I read it during a time that I was going to give up on Blood Sugar. And I read Circe and I thought, oh my God, I can, not that I can write as well as Madeline Miller, not that my book will be as beautiful as Circe, but it gave me the strength to write an unlikable anti-heroine. It gave me the strength to know I can write about a woman who makes some bad choices, but if you hear from her directly, you might just be able to relate to her. And that really like infused me with like really just, strength to to get back into blood sugar and finish it so the Circe is is um is is a means a lot to me and it's an incredible book on so many levels so that's why I want I wanted you to read it and I couldn't believe you hadn't read it so yeah me either other than having seen the cover because it's everywhere I hadn't even really heard of it and this is my mom and I are also big fans of Greek myths every time there's a new translation of the Odyssey she buys it for me I mean you know, we, I, I know this material and I knew that this book existed. I thought was just, I just didn't, I don't know why it never crossed my radar, but it is absolutely amazing. I should say it came out, uh, it's a, Circe is a little brown, 2018. So it's fairly new, last five years. And for readers who haven't read it, first of all, go read it. Like, do yourself a favor and read this book. It's about Circe, the demigod, and it's the story of Olympus from inception to the stars dying out from her, or well, I guess from inception to her dying from her own perspective. And this is a story we don't hear. And Cersei spends most of her life on an island, but we still get to sort of meet the entire panoply of Greek heroes, even though she only leaves her island, I think, two or three times in the book. Why do you think Madeline Miller chose Cersei as opposed to Calypso or, you know, one of the one of the uh, Olympian A-listers? I, I think it's sort of like uh, I've been thinking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm. and sort of the fun of not only telling the side of the story from the other, from the point of view of the villain like Maleficent, but from the point of view of someone who we wouldn't think is an A-lister, mm. from someone that we hear about on the sidelines. And I think um, for people who are huge Greek mythology buffs, reading this will feel like you're hearing gossip about people you went to high school with that you haven't heard about. And you're like, oh, I haven't heard that story. And people who don't know anything can absolutely learn and read and follow along. And, and you don't have to know anything to enjoy this book. So I just want to start there. Um, but Circe is this hard character. It's a horrible woman that we, you know, we've learned through, you know, the songs of men, um, the, the take on this, this, this horrible witch living on an island, turning men into pigs she she's she's evil and ugly and dangerous and um very much sort of a man's worst nightmare and i when you think about it like that and i love this idea that 
Madeline Miller took her, flushed her out, gave her a voice, a background, a childhood, a coming of age, a truly like finding herself. And then we understand why she was mean and bad and why she did some bad things and looking. And and again, like with she absolutely everyone she heard deserved it, I, I think. And even the people she turns into monsters and she points out, which I think is such an amazing is they were monsters truly on the inside. And she just let them become who they are by being a witch, which, uh, you know, you could debate, but I, I think there's so much here. So I think unlike your book, I don't think that everyone in Cersei Hurt deserved it. I think most of them did deserve it, but she went through this period where if, if you know anything about Greek mythology, or you've read the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know that Cersei is marooned on an island and, sailors crash into her island and she turns them into pigs or she turns she does horrible things to them and madeline miller creates the story where this happened once and the men realizing that she was alone on the island raped her and savaged her and you know had their way with her and left and she was understandably um you know really hurt and broken by that and so what she starts doing is luring similar ships to the island and then just enchanting the men and killing them and turning them into pigs so and she does this for presumably centuries so so who knows how many men she turned into pigs during this time right and so you know i agree with you that the first men who actually did something to her had had it coming but i mean she's just killing random people afterwards Mm. you know like just think about like you know maybe you're a passenger on a ship that's moving oil from one place to another, and you just come aboard because everyone's going aboard. Right. You're 100% right about that. And this is interesting to me because what is that the take in Greek mythology and the lore we've heard? Or is that the take in Madeline Miller Circe? Hmm. Because when I read Circe, I specific, and, and maybe I, maybe I just read sort of, and I thought about what I wanted to think about, but separate, separating it out from what we've heard I thought that she gave everyone a chance to sort of prove themselves okay. And once they had one sort of one bad thing, then she turned them into pigs. Yeah. So I I I think that is what what happened. But the book, so Cersei is the son, sorry, Cersei is the daughter of the son. Cersei is the daughter of Helios. And she is sort of the wayward child. And he, you know, he doesn't love her. He doesn't, she doesn't have powers like her. She has some powers, but she doesn't really have powers like the rest of her siblings. And she she thinks mortals are fascinating. And she really kind of derides these gods, the Olympian gods and the other higher gods, for using mortals as playthings and for just being generally cruel. Like she, she seems to like mortals and she thinks that the other gods are really cruel to them. But then she ends up doing the exact same thing. You know, she she's a goddess and she ends up kind of behaving like those other gods for we don't know how long time is so strange in this book because she you know she right. is born at the beginning of the universe so um but presumably it's hundreds of years she was doing right this. it's nearly thousands yeah. of years i uh it's interesting because sort of like groundhog day the debate of how many days does um bill murray wake up <laughs> like what did the writers intend and I've actually read they intended 18,000 years, which puts a whole new spin on when you think about how crazy he could have gone. I read this and granted you read it last week mm. and I didn't. So I I could be, but I understood it as the lore, the Greek mythology, the men telling these tales for hundreds of years through mortals 
exaggerated greatly what she did to men, that she lured them, that she turned them all into pigs for centuries and centuries and centuries. What I understood is she did it once or twice to protect herself and also other way, wayward daughters of other gods get sent there and she becomes this sort of, this sort of, um, not nanny, what's the word, sort of this caretaker, this like dorm, this resident advisor for all that, which is really, but that she says it's a huge exaggeration what the men have said about her and that she hasn't just been luring men for hundreds of years and turning them into pigs. But this is why this is so fun to talk about, because I'm not sure if I took that and really ran with it too much and thought, okay, well, she really has just been like bad mouthed or I don't know. Well, I think I probably took it and ran with it in the other direction, maybe further than, uh, than Madeline Miller intended. You, I think you're probably right. It's um, interesting though. It's yeah. an interesting, also it's so, it's interesting to know this story, these stories so well, and then separate it from her version. Mm-hmm. And like, what is her version and what do you, versus the other versions? And who are we, ta- you know, who are we talking about and who do we believe? Yeah. One of the most fascinating things that Madeline Miller did in this book was she makes the Olympians kind of the bad guys. And like, they're kind of like the mean clique that has taken over the high school. Yeah. Um, and there's this scene where Cersei has her, I think uh, the, for sure my favorite scene in the book was when Cersei has her son to, to Legolas, I want to say, I, I can't get the name straight, but it's her son is named, uh, it, it's Odysseus's bastard child. And it's, uh, there's some God who keeps trying to kill him. And she finally says, show yourself. And it's, you know, none other than Pallas Athena who shows herself. And just like, as a as a Greek myth fan, I like got chills when Athena shows up in this book. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I just think like th- this is this is a god you don't want to mess with, and she stands up to her. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. the gray eyed god. She it is really the heroes from other stories are really the villains in this book mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and the bad guys are the heroes of their own story. And yet they're sort of, they're so, I love, there's this one line about her father. I just thought it was such a lovely line. He was a harp with only one string and the note it played was himself. And just the absolute, literally, I mean, talk about narcissistic, literally from narcissists, but these gods are so narcissistic and so self-involved. And it is fun to think about them in terms of a true family with like their sibling rivalry and there's, you know, feeling not good enough. And she writes about it in such a relatable way. I haven't quite, I've, I, you know, Greek mythology is, is the epic adventures and the parables, but I've never felt sort of it being personal hmm. until I read Circe. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It really just, it's kind of plays out like a family drama the way she writes it. And it makes it really, really fascinating. Why do you think these, like these characters in the Greek canon, are so enduring? That's a very good question. The, well, the imagery—I think the imagery is so simple for children to latch onto, and I don't mean that in a in a condescending way. But I remember as a very young child learning about Atlas and just this idea that this man has to hold the world and how heavy that must be. And I could understand it. It was so visually clear and simple. And I could understand Sisyphus pushing this rock and it would come down and I could grasp how I could grasp the physicality of that. 
And I think when children learn about Greek mythology, they can take it in and then learn more and more. And it could be more, you know, in the Minotaur and the maze, it's almost like a, it's like a game that you, you can understand. And I think that's why I think because, because it's the, the stories are told in a way that children can be captivated by, by them. And then as they grow older, they can hear more advanced details. Wow. That's my theory. I think, I think that's the answer. That's, that's, that's brilliant. I mean, you're right that, and I, if I think about my own journey with mythology, that's how it started. I just heard these stories as a kid and understood them on a very physical level. And they just get deeper and deeper as you get older. It struck me that this was sort of like Greek mythological midrash, which is a, it's a you know, a Jewish tradition of kind of telling stories about the Bible. Mm-hmm. And there's volumes of of midrash from Hebrew scholars that are, you know, here's the here's this one verse of the Bible, and here's a thousand pages of what this might mean, you know, and the stories that might have gone into this. Circe seems like it's in that tradition for me. Yeah, it takes license, but very much respecting the canon in a way if there is such a thing as canon for mythology but one part of this book that I love and think about a lot and I actually don't know I've never read this before but maybe this is part of the myth and I'm uneducated and that I thought Madeline Miller created it but the idea that Circe gives Prometheus kindness and gives him that cup of nectar Mm -hmm. do you know if that's actually no I I'd never heard that. I think she sort of invented that, which I just love this moment in time of this guy that we only hear like one thing about. Mm -hmm. And then to sort of weave in this secret moment, it just was beautiful to me. I love that too. Yeah. And I don't know if she invented it or not, but it was just so powerful that Prometheus was, everybody knows Prometheus stole fire, gave it to humans, which was the basis for all human ingenuity and civilization, et cetera. And the gods punished him for it. And then, in this book, they take a few centuries just to figure out how to punish him. It, it takes Zeus a long time just to figure out what would be worthy of this um, affront. And the reason that the Olympian gods don't like what Prometheus did is because it makes humans more comfortable, which makes them less apt to sacrifice. And, you know, they're all about their whole existence is based on humans sacrificing goats to them so that they can eat them. And yeah, it's just fascinating that she she describes this, you know, just this torture at, that they put Prometheus through before they send him to his ultimate fate, which is to That's be right. chained to a rock and be have his liver eaten by buzzards every day. And the idea of never dying, I think the idea of eternal life, I mean, you know, it's like why we all like vampires so much is this idea that they can never die. And another thing I think, I think was in here, which was funny to fun, it was funny to me is also one of the reasons that gods were so mad at Prometheus was because humans then loved cooked meat it was really yummy Mm. and they wanted to eat it for themselves so they no longer gave the best meats to the gods in sacrifice they gave them the scraps and then the gods they don't want the scraps the smoky scraps this is an outrage um we want the good stuff yeah wow no you're right of course they're they're like you know i didn't realize this until i went through the um so i went through i did a a thing with a friend of mine where we read a small portion of the Bible or the Torah every week. And we talked about it and just, you know, thought about it. I'm not religious. We, neither of us are religious. We just decided to do this. And one of the things we figured out when we had gotten through Leviticus was like, they're killing like, like a hundred bulls a week. You know, they're just sacrificing animals left and right. I mean, 
I, I remember reading this one chapter and just saying, think of the smell. Like there's so many. But what um what they do is when you sacrifice an animal to a, a god, you bless it and you cook it and you ceremonially sacrifice it to the god, but then you eat it yourself. So they're killing all these bulls, but it's because the temple was feeding the town. Ah. Um, yeah, and so the you know the best parts would obviously go to the priests, right. but you know the, you know they, they didn't just burn these bulls in a fire. Not they were actually that. everyone was okay. eating. Okay, well that's yeah. you know. And and I always thought that it was like ceremonial that you would like you know if you consecrated it to the gods and you know the gods would magically get to eat it and then you could eat it too. But but yeah, who knows? I mean I mean this is all like yeah you know, I, I don't I don't really understand I don't really I think applying logic to religion is a, a fruitless task. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. For, well, when did you first read this book? I read it about three years into, I'm trying to think of when I, t- I wrote, I was writing my book on and off for five years. And this sort of came right in the middle of that. So that would have been, I guess, 2019 ish. Sure. I don't know. Time no longer has any meaning. 2018. Yeah. I think I read it in 2019. And then I reread, I did look through everything for this, for this chat. What made you, what made you want to pick it up? I've always loved Greek mythology, um, mm. and I had a, a show that ended up not going um, to series, but I had a pilot about a, a descendant of Pandora realizing that she still had the box, and she alone was the keeper of hope. And so I kind of, you know, have done deep dives throughout just to kind of do research for one thing or another. and. Um, the reviews of taking this lesser known woman and, and giving her her own story. I'm always interested in that. Yeah. Sasha, I was like amazed at how good this book was and that I really had not read it. I'm mad at everyone I know for not telling me. So. How dare but, they? Well, now we yes. can talk about it. Yeah. The writing is so beautiful, but mm-hmm. it's not pretentious. Like this is a book that shouldn't scare people who don't want to really dive in. It's beautiful and so well done. But not, it's not like one of those books that you won't understand and not want to admit it. I completely agree with that. I would say that your writing is beautiful and not pretentious. I would say that Madeline Miller's writing is beautiful and it is kind of pretentious, but her subject matter makes that totally work. Fair, fair. Um, You know, I think she's like, it's like, you know, she's talking about these lofty gods. So she gives, you know, she does sometimes go on these flights of fancy, but they're really, they're really beautiful. And just like the, the idea, the the subjects that they're discussing make that kind of elevated language pretty appropriate. I don't know if you've had any immortal characters in your uh, work before, but do you think immortality is a blessing or a curse? I think most people reflexively think it's a blessing, but it seems to be a curse yeah, for these gods. I think I have always been a big fan of vampires. I've been, um, I think if anybody was sort of in my book in Blood Sugar, if if I was a character, it'd probably be Gabrielle, the uh, the patient of Ruby, the pale mm-hmm. patient, but um, sort of gothy. But I, it's completely side side note. But I, yeah, vampires. I think vampires have always fascinated me um, because they always seem to be beautiful and young forever. And I know mm-hmm. now there's a new is there a new show about a fat vampire that's very funny. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. Is there? I, I would love think to see there that. is. I think somebody was telling me, and I didn't need to find it. But that I think the idea of immortality—if you're sort of perfect, 
is really fun to think about. But then if you start thinking about immortality and you're being tortured every day, that's not so great. And, and so is it worth the risk of being immortal if you find yourself in a bad situation? I don't think so. Mm. Um, and I know like, every, you know, sort of this idea of you grow old and everyone, you know, is a blip on the radar and humans come and go. But then if you can have like an immortal friend, then you're fine. Huh. But the idea of like Prometheus forever and ever and ever being stuck in this, I don't think is worth the idea of being you know, Athena, who's beautiful and strong and powerful forever and ever and ever has one bad move and you're, you know, you're, you're fucked. I guess if you believe in hell, which I don't, I guess that's sort of the fear, right? A more for, forever you're being tortured and punished. But I think there's something slightly sort of calming about everything comes to an end somehow. I totally agree with you. I think about this a lot because I, I, I write about artificial intelligence and you know, there's this sort of unspoken, and sometimes if you're Elon Musk and or Ray Kurzweil, spoken idea that we're eventually going to be able to transfer our consciousness to a cloud and live forever. And I like, I'm going to leave behind a like living directive to never resurrect yeah. my consciousness. You know, like whatever. If I get 80, 90 years on this planet, that is great. Yeah. I'm good. And you can check out my work if you want to know what I thought. Other than that, I'm I'm out. The Black Mirror White Christmas. Did you see that one with John Hamm? So. It's, it's five or six years old. It still haunts me. A sort of about sort of a version of a person in artificial intelligence form that's stuck, and it's hard. It's haunting. I'm going to watch it right now. So I think we're ready to wrap this up, Sasha. I'm going to ask you the final question that I ask everybody, which is to recommend two books to our audience. Oh God, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. Two books, two books, two books. Okay. Can I, okay. One book is absolute standard classic, blah, blah, blah. But it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's Middlemarch. And it is so fun and like gossipy and you get into the nitty gritty of such small details. And I'm such a fan of if right, if you, if you can sit in a parlor room and gossip and make me want to stay there with these people. I feel like that's great storytelling. So that's sort of one that has been around for a long time, obviously, and is a classic. A new, I'm going to think of a new book that I have loved recently. While you're looking for that, I should tell you that on this podcast, uh, listeners know that Middlemarch is actually the correct answer. It is? <laughs> yes. There is no correct answer, but Middlemarch is, is like definitely my all-time favorite I didn't know. I had, did not. And actually, and I've not, and I will admit to have not listened yet to this podcast, because since I have met you, I have been insanely busy, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta listen, I gotta listen, I gotta listen, and I will listen. Okay, this actually, this book I read very recently, it's not new, but it, it changed. I think about it almost every day. It's called The House of God. Hmm. And it's written, it's an incredibly dark, satire about a resident in the ER and it was written in the 70s it's a it's a memoir in a in a fake name the real author has now come forward he went to Harvard Medical School Harvard was very upset at him for writing this book and now every medical student reads this book and Harvard invited him to speak hmm. and he's Samuel Shem is the fake name is this is the pen name and it's so funny and dark and shocking in a way that like 
nothing is like nothing is like this now. Nothing is this brutally honest about the me- about the medical community. All right, that's awesome. One book I know very well, and one book I never heard of, so that's perfect. Cool. Well, thank you, Sasha Rothschild, for joining thank us. Thank you. And we're going to have you back as soon as you have another book, or we're going to have you back to promote the TV or film version of. Blood I Sugar. will. I'll come back as soon as possible. This episode of the Book Society podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair is a literary festival. It happens in Miami in November every year, third week of November. You can visit their website, miamibookfair.com. You can find them on socials. They're amazing. So if you've ever dreamt about meeting up with some of your favorite authors, some of the greatest living minds in literature today. The Miami Book Fair is a place for you. They have the best authors around, giving talks, giving lectures, just walking around, looking at all the tables with all the wonderful books. It's a great place to buy books. It's a great place to be around authors. It's a great place to read books. And Miami is just a cool city. So if you've never been, it's highly, highly recommended. Thanks, Miami Book Fair. Thank you for this episode. Thank you for previous episodes. Thank you for future episodes. I will see you in Miami in November. You're fucked. Can I say fucked? You can say fucked. Yeah, this is this isn't a TV show. Yeah, I think I think. uh...